0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Central and South American cichlids include some of the most behaviorally complex and colorful adult species in the hobby. Adults display vibrant turquoise, fluorescent reds, oranges, and yellows. These cichlids are prized by intermediate and advanced fish keepers who know their species by scientific name, locale, and strain. My guest today is Dan Sharifi, owner of Cichlids of the Americas, an internet-based source of some of the most beautiful and difficult-to-find species and strains of New World Cichlids. Join us as Dan explains how a former financial services manager became a premier source of New World Cichlids in the U.S. today. We'll be right back after these messages. Molly, here's your dinner. There's a six-inch tray for large bowls and a four-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. dot com. That's CatTreeTray.com. tree tray dot com. C A T T R E E T R A Y dot com. Let's talk pets on PetLifeRadio.com. dot com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dan Sharifi, owner and operator of Cichlids of the Americas. Hi, Dan. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Roy.
0: So, you know, I've had a chance to visit your place. You've got a lot of really Im- amazing, incredibly beautiful fish. I um, want to kind of get to know you a little bit for the, the listeners. So, and I like to ask some of these how you got into the hobby, et cetera, sorts of questions. So, let's start with what was your first fish and your very first aquarium?
1: So my first fish in my first aquarium was back in 1978 at the time I was living in Argentina. And I had a carnival goldfish that I had won. And uh, I had a really hard time cleaning the tank as I was a kid. So we had a pool out in our backyard that was uh, fairly dysfunctional. So I decided to throw the fish in the pool and see what happened. And uh, at the time, the fish was probably around an inch and a half or two inches. And lo and behold, uh, about a year later, in a dirty pool, I spotted about a 8 or a 10-inch fish, and I think I was hooked right then and there.
0: So this sounds like that fish-out-of-water book. You weren't, like, the inspiration for that, were you?
1: No, I think it was just a it was just a matter of uh, I didn't really know how to clean the fish tank. I didn't pay much attention to it, and the weather was fairly temperate in Argentina, so I figured if it could live uh, in a little fishbowl, it would probably do a lot better in a pool so it went from literally a one-and-a-half to two-inch fish to about eight or ten inches in a matter of about six or seven months. I was eating all the algae in there, and uh, I couldn't believe that the fish had survived, and it was that big and that orange uh, in that environment. So I think right then and there was when it piqued my interest, and uh, it hasn't left me since. And how old were you about? I was about nine years old. Okay. So then, how did
0: you first get involved in the hobby?
1: Well, I always kept fish, but... I really didn't pay a lot of attention to them. I kind of experimented with different fish. Some of them were, I had guppies like everybody does, I had goldfish, and then I had betas. But really, I would say when I first got seriously involved in the hobby was my sophomore year in college. I had an old-style water bed, and I know I'm dating myself. The old-style water beds didn't really have headboards, so I decided to buy a 55-gallon fish tank and use it as a headboard. And in there, I had a pair of convicts and a pair of tiger oscars. It was a great sight because uh, every morning when you'd get up, you'd see the fish begging for food, and uh, you can see their interactions with one another as well as them growing. So at that point, I would say probably from that point on, I always had a fish tank somewhere or another in the house or multiple fish tanks in the house.
0: That's a pretty cool idea, little headboard there. So what was your day job then before you became a fish farmer?
1: So I spent about 18 or 19 years in the corporate world uh, in financial services. It involved a tremendous amount of travel. What happened was there was a lot of international travel. There was a a conflict of interest related to my working and traveling and going overseas quite a few times a year and maintaining fish. But all in all, I kept fish, and uh, it was just a method of me relaxing and uh, not losing sight of a hobby that I loved as a child. And uh, from there, it was mostly work and just mostly keeping fish.
0: And were you, uh, I forgot, were you in New York at the time, or where were you based?
1: I was actually based in Chicago, in Tampa, in Dallas, in the Philippines, in India, in Montreal for a little while, and a few other countries up and down uh, the line that I probably had short stays in, but uh, it's always, uh, when you travel that much, it's really difficult to maintain fish, as you know. But in a couple of the places that I stayed for an extended period of time, I can tell you uh, there was, uh, I moved probably more than 25 to 30 fish tanks at a time, and that itself within itself was not an easy task to do. But it's mostly travel, and uh, when you run call centers and you're in the financial services industry, you're always traveling, and it's really not conducive to maintaining uh, multiple aquariums. But between the time that I had at home and uh, the time that uh, my wife spent taking care of the fish and a few others along the way that helped out, managed to come along all that time.
0: That's definitely dedication. So why and when did you decide to get into the fish business?
1: So in about 2008, it was uh, shortly after the uh, real estate market crashed. What happened was I was actually between jobs and I was kind of thinking whether I should go back and work in the financial services industry. And uh, I was actually interviewing and I had opportunities to go overseas And my wife actually made a recommendation to, well, your fish are breeding, why don't you try selling some of the fish? So I started selling some of my stock and I I just couldn't believe that there was such a large demand for some of the fish that I had maintained. And from there, we never really looked back. We just started raising more and more different kinds of species. And it was a situation where I really couldn't breed enough of the fish that I had and uh, it became—it was the first time I would say that, in my mind, it was a viable business to sell fish and uh, do something that I really enjoyed and that I was passionate about.
0: Well, oh, that's a great story. So, obviously, there's so many different fish in the hobby. Why cichlids and why specifically New World Cichlids?
1: Well, I think the one thing about New World Cichlids is that it's very, very easy to get hooked on uh, their behaviors as it relates to parental care, as it relates to their interaction. And there's a lot of fish in the hobby to choose from, really, as you mentioned. But I think what separates New World Cichlids from most of the other fish is that, first, they don't grow to an abundantly large size. Some of them get over 12 inches, definitely. But there's not a lot of New World Cichlids that get so large that they're not capable to be maintained in an aquarium. Yet the one thing that's really interesting about them is... Even from the smallest New World Cichlids that are two inches fully grown all the way up to the ones that are in excess of 12 inches, they display the same parental care, and they have great personalities, and they make great wet pets.
0: So what was the hardest part of getting the whole business started?
1: So what we do is uh, is a little bit different than what a lot of the traditional fish farmers do. So I would say that the hardest thing was that I didn't want to really concentrate on one or two or three different kinds of New World cichlids. I wanted to offer a variety of New World cichlids. And right now we maintain close to about 80 or 90 different species. And I would say that the hardest part was first collecting species that were not any longer available in the hobby. And then along those lines, it's a never ending battle. Even today, being in the business in excess of eight years, I'm still looking for species that once were in the hobby that are no longer available in the hobby. And then the second one is really facilities. And it's a real change in mindset going from a hobbyist to setting up a facility where you can actually breed and raise fish. And what we do is a little bit different than uh, what the traditional fish farmers do, not only in the number of species that they keep, but we have a very controlled environment where almost all of our breeding is done exclusively indoors so that there's no hybridization or cross-contamination of species.
0: That's pretty amazing, and and I, I know you've gone through a couple of facility changes. What countries do most of your fish come from?
1: Uh, Most of my fish are actually Central Americans. I do have some South American cichlids, but most of them actually come from Mexico. I'd say about 70% of my fish come from Mexico. There's also fish in my collection from Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, Colombia, but the majority I'd say are are from Mexico, and that's atypical because if you look at Mexico, I'd say about 70% of the cichlids that are uh, out in the hobby right now, of all New World cichlids, Uh, are probably found in mexico
0: and you obviously have had to go to mexico and some of these other places do you have a, a favorite story or interesting anecdote about any of the collecting trips or meetings with new suppliers
1: yeah, I think, uh, I think anybody that actually is involved with New World Cichlids at some point or another makes a couple of collecting trips. What I can tell you about them is that while they sound very glamorous, they're usually very tedious, and it's, uh, it's, the majority of the time is spent searching. But I can tell you that a few years back, we were in Belize, and we were looking for a particular species in Belize, and it's called a synspilum. And uh, we found several locations to catch the fish. And we tried for days and days, and we couldn't find the fish. We couldn't catch the fish. We would see the fish, but we couldn't catch the fish. They were too fast. And on our last day in Belize, what happened was we were driving over the Hummingbird Highway. And if you've ever been to Belize, what you realize is that there's only really three main paved roads in Belize. One of them is the Hummingbird Highway. And there was a little overpass with about an inch of water crossing over it. And uh, we walked down there to see if there were any live bears or if there were any species in there. And we had spent about a week trying to catch this species. And what ended up happening was we noticed that there was a pair that had spawned right next to the uh, highway underpass or overpass. And what happened was, we ended up scooping up a bunch of the babies and brought them back with us. And to this day, those babies ended up growing out to be a lot of my brood stock for that particular species that we uh, we raise and we sell.
0: Uh, that's funny. Of course, it's always going to be the the strangest place that that you'll uh, find. Can you describe this cinspilum for folks that aren't familiar with them?
1: Sure. It's a, uh, a fish with a high body. And uh, what's interesting about it is that as juveniles, they don't particularly display a lot of color. They're silver, and they have a uh, black line going through half of their bodies horizontally. And over time, all of that silver turns into red, yellow, and greens and golds. And uh, it's truly an amazing fish. But what's more interesting about it is that uh, the fish hits about 12 to 14 inches fully grown. Uh, very high bodied fish, very colorful, and fairly peaceful. They display phenomenal, phenomenal parental care as it relates to their fry and as it relates to defending their fry. And uh, what's really interesting about it is that as large as that fish gets, it's fairly peaceful and fairly gentle and uh, gets along very well with other aquarium fish. But what drew me to that fish originally, and it was one of the fish that actually, the first, one of the first fish that I saw that I would say is like an intermediate level fish as it relates to the hobby That really drew me to it, because here you have a fish that's 12 inches, 10 to 12 inches fully grown, and it displays uh, color similar to a saltwater fish. So lots of color, lots of personality, and uh, relatively easy to take care of.
0: And they are beautiful fish. I want to ask one more quick question before we take our break and and get a little bit more into the the weeds with the fish and, and keeping these species. But where do your fish normally go? Where do you sell your fish?
1: So we sell fish in 50 contiguous states in the United States, and we've also sold fish to Puerto Rico, as well as we sh- we've we shipped fish internationally to the United Kingdom, Spain, France, Macau, Taiwan, Japan. Singapore, and uh, believe it or not, Costa Rica and Mexico we've sent fish to. Along with others, uh, we've shipped fish to Israel, Indonesia, really all over the world. And uh, I would say that uh, probably the furthest we've ever shipped fish to is Macau, which is about when you uh, account for the delays in flights, between flights, as well as the time it takes to go through customs, the fish were bagged for in excess of 96 hours, and they made it there safely.
0: Wow, that's pretty amazing. Well, I definitely do want to get more into the weeds, so to speak, with you in the second half, but let's take a short break, hear a little bit more from our sponsors, and then continue our discussion of New World Cichlids with Dan right after these messages from our sponsors.
1: Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy?
0: Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Dan Sharifi, owner of Cichlids of the Americas. So, Dan, we got to know a little bit about how you got into the hobby and some of your collecting exploits. Let's talk a little bit more about the fish now. What are, let's say, your three favorite New World cichlid species? I know it's probably, it's probably going to be tough, but if I had to pin you down, what would you say your three favorites are?
1: So, I would say that I have an affinity towards more of the riverine species, fish that live in uh, fast, flowing waters. And uh, the three species that actually interest me the most, one of them is a fish called the Theraps irregularis. And uh, I'll describe the fish for you. It's a fairly shy fish when it's a juvenile, but the fish hits about 12 or 13 inches, and it's a very elongated body. And while the length is 12 or 13 inches, it seldom gets higher than three and a half or four inches in height. And again, similarly to a lot of the uh, Central American cichlids, it's a... uh, gray fish when it's a juvenile but when it hits about four inches you'll start seeing colors appearing on it and the colors that appear on it are yellow orange green blue purple red black and it's just a variety of of colors and it's literally like looking at a fish that's painted like a rainbow they're fairly secretive when they're young but what really interests me is that, uh, it, about this fish is its, uh, its parental behavior. And uh, just when it's uh, in breeding colors, it is just a sight to look at as far as how many colors the fish displays. The other fishes uh, that actually interest me are two uh, fish that are also riverine species. One of them is from Panama, and the other one is from Costa Rica. One of them is a Tomocicla tuba, and the other one is a Tomocicla esfraceae. And the tuba and the Esfrasi are both closely related. One of them is found, Costa Rica has the tuba, and Panama has the Esfrasi. And again, these are two riverine species, very fast-moving fish, elongated bodies. The tuba is uh, green, black, red, and white, and it's got, a, uh, it's got a black mask over its head. And the Esfrasi, I would say, is uh, arguably one of the prettiest Central American cichlids, and it was actually discovered, Espressoi is actually an acronym for Association France Cichlid. So they took the first two letters or three letters of each word and they created the species Espressoi and named the species Espressoi. This fish is got a gray undertone, but the body, the colors on the gray undertone are bright, bright orange and bright, bright black. So what happens is uh, you have a gray and orange fish with black peppering all through it. And uh, very rare fish, very easy to keep, and again, displays phenomenal parental care, and uh, quite a sight to look at in an aquarium.
0: Those are definitely beautiful fish, and I think, I guess, compared to the Africans, these guys have kind of a mixing of colors and sort of a, you know, much more fluorescence than maybe some of the common African cichlids people are used to. Would you kind of agree with that?
1: I would agree with that. I think one of the things with the Central Americans is while you have different kinds of cichlids, some of the old world cichlids, their behavior is a lot more secretive. And one of the things that that really is uh, interesting with Central American cichlids is that they're not shy about their behavior, whether it's breeding or whether it's asking or begging for food or whether it's displaying themselves in order to protect their territory. And where you have uh, smaller fish, I think they tend to be a little bit more secretive. But as it relates to some of the or most of the Central American cichlids, they're certainly not shy about displaying their behavior. They're certainly not shy about showing you what they want, whether it's food or whether it's for you to back off their territory. And I think that holds true from the very smallest species all the way to the very, very large ones that, that are available in the hobby.
0: So what are some of the different breeding strategies that New World cichlids use or are they all fairly similar?
1: This is a question that I get from a lot of people. How do we breed this fish? Or how do we breed this species? And ultimately, it's an answer that I always give them. And it's probably not the answer that they're looking for. But it's uh, if you uh, listen to it carefully, it's probably the most clear and concise answer. And what it is, is at any given point in time, we probably have no less than 30 or 40 pairs of fish breeding in our facility. And as odd as it sounds... I don't ever set out to breed fish. What we always try to set out to do is to create an ideal environment for the fish so that it does what naturally comes to it. So one of the big mistakes that a lot of people make is they buy one female and one male and they expect – breeding to occur. And while that works sometimes, it really doesn't work the majority of the time. So whenever we breed, what we do is we give ample space. We make sure that their dietary requirements are met. Uh, We give them clean, clean water. And what we do is we try to establish the best environment for the fish to thrive in. And when you do that, the end result is breeding. But what's most important is making sure that you give an environment to the fish that's comfortable. So I would say that a lot of the breeding strategies that we use is just really in maintaining, making sure that our water quality is adequate, making sure that we're feeding them a balanced diet, and making sure that there's ample number of fish in both sexes so that what comes naturally to them occurs.
0: So when you mention ample number of fish of both sexes, are you saying, like, do they breed as pairs or how do they kind of do it on the kind well, of fish level?
1: most of the fish that we have, uh, what we'll do is we'll start out in colonies as juveniles from anywhere from 12 to 15. And what happens is as they grow a little bit larger and they're in excess of three to four inches, what we'll do is we'll typically pair out some of the males if there's an excess number of males. And we'll typically run it at a two to one ratio on females to males. And we make sure that there's plenty of territory for the males to defend a specific territory and to court a female. And uh, from there, it's really just letting nature take its course. But as you can imagine, the more choice that the males have as well as the females have in picking a suitable partner, the higher likelihood you have of getting a successful spawn.
0: Gotcha. So it's actually like people don't really want arranged marriages, kind of that deal, right?
1: It's exactly like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So which of the fish would you say that you have are your best sellers?
1: So that's a real interesting question, Roy. And uh, I would tell you, as peculiar as it may sound, the fish that sell in, uh, in particular areas, in, in some areas, certain fish sell, and in other areas, certain fish don't sell at all. So let me give you a perfect example. Like in the United States, there seems to be a large desire for what I would call uh, wet pets. Most of the customer base in the United States wants a fish that is going to grow rather large, that it's going to be interactive. And a lot of the times, while people buy fish from me, they may buy six or eight of one species. And what will happen is they're really looking for the most interactive fish in the aquarium. And those fish typically happen to be anything in the uh, amphilophus complex, which is common red doubles, mitocyclids. Dovi, parachromus dovi, a uh, Colombian fish called a Cacataya umbriferum, which is a big blue fish. And most of these fish that sell in the United States are fish that typically get larger than 12 inches. They're very colorful, but what draws most of the uh, U.S. customer base towards it is the fact that they're very, very interactive. They act like a wet pet, and it's almost like having a cat or a dog in an aquarium. The fish will come up and defend its territory. The fish will beg for food, and they're typically very colorful, but very, very large. When you go to countries like uh, the EU and in Europe, it's a little bit different, because, and I would imagine it's because uh, in Europe, you have smaller homes, and you have a lot, a lot of people living in smaller spaces as opposed to the United States. What you'll see is you'll see smaller tanks, and they tend to buy smaller fish, smaller fish that end, end up being uh, similar to not larger than five or six inches. And some of those fish are riverine species, like Theraps lentigonosum, Theraps ceruleus A lot of fish in the uh, firemouth, Thoracthes, Family or complex. And these fish typically tend to be all in the four to five to six inch range. Some of them are elongated, some of them have higher bodies. But I would say that the complexity and the rarity of the fish is a little bit larger than what's requested in the United States. And they're not as interactive. They're a little bit more secretive. But I think uh, the markets are different in the sense that what I see in the European market is there's a bigger desire to breed fish as it relates to the hobbyists, as it relates to the challenge of breeding that species. Whereas in the American market, there is a larger desire to purchase a fish that is more like a pet And then Asia, really, the species that they look for are the real hard-to-find species. It doesn't really matter what the size is or how aggressive they are or how colorful they are. I think uh, the Asian markets really, really look for fish that are very rare, unseen in the hobby, or uh, seldom seen in the hobby. And I think it's primarily for resale. So I think uh, each market is a little bit different. So we try to accommodate all of them and all of the species in all three markets. There's beautiful species that can be wet pets. There's beautiful species that can be secretive. And it's really what the consumer wants. And it's really a matter of what piques their interest.
0: Well, that's definitely an interesting kind of take on the various types of fish that each area wants. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about maybe keeping some of these fish just to give some of our listeners an idea. What are some of the requirements for some of the species? Are they all fairly similar enough that people can keep them um, in the same types of water, etc., environments?
1: Well, one of the things that I always say, and we sell Central American cichlids and South American cichlids, and uh, one of the requirements is make sure that the water quality is uh, appropriate to what that fish's environment, natural environment, is. So for sake of argument, Central American cichlids like water that's a little bit harder, a little bit higher pH, and South American cichlids like water that's a little bit softer and a little bit more acidic. And what I would say is... The best way to be successful with a fish is to emulate the environment that the fish actually comes from, to give it ample space, and to make sure that not only are its dietary requirements are are met, but its environmental requirements are met too. And that's mostly water, cleanliness of the tank, and making sure that it has a balanced diet to thrive in.
0: Now, you mentioned um, Asia-liking kind of unique and rare fish. What type of species do you have that you would kind of consider it to be, you know, rare
1: so I think that's a great question, Roy, and I kind of break up rare in two areas. One of them, rare being a fish that was in the hobby that's no longer in the hobby, and then rare as a fish that's never been in the hobby that's being introduced into the hobby or will be introduced into the hobby. So the fish that are rare that once were in the hobby and no longer in the hobby are, uh, as I mentioned, cicla as frassi, the uh, cichlid that was discovered by the French Cichlid Association. And at one point, about 10 years ago, the fish was readily available, and today, I think there's probably less than 50 of them in captivity. And the other one is the tuba, and uh, that's, the, uh, that's similar to the s for but that fish is from Costa Rica, and it's a fish that I'm currently working with that we imported from Costa Rica, and it's, again, a fish that there's less than probably 50 of them in captivity today. And the other portion of the question as it relates to rare cichlids is uh, there's a species that, that we just started uh, working with, and it's uh, it's called the Herichthys pantastictus. And uh, what it is, is uh, it's a high-bodied fish that doesn't get larger than eight inches, and they come in actually three colors – there is, uh, the common name for them is Laberdens. There's a yellow Laberdens, There is a blue Laberdens, which is referred to as the Pantastictus. And then there's the white Labordens, which is uh, just different colors of the same fish. So recently, we were working with the uh, blue Labordens, often referred to as the Pantastictus. And we had a pair that had kicked out about, uh, I'd say about 500 babies, and one of the things that we realized was that 20% of the babies were smaller than the other 80%. So we separated them out. And what we discovered was that these babies were actually true albinos. And uh, it's probably albinism in cichlids in any species is a fairly rare phenomenon. So I think, to my knowledge, it's the only time an albino form of a Pantastictus or Labrodent has ever been bred either in captivity, and I've never heard of them ever being caught in the wild, probably because their survival rates are so low. But these two fish that happen to be brought in from a collection trip, one of them, or both of them, had the albinism genetic trait. So the fish are now about two inches, two and a half inches, and we're actually getting ready to publish an article in Tropical Fish Hobbyist regarding the fish itself as well as the process we went through to breeding and breeding and separating the fish and uh, what it looks like chronically, how the fish looks like. And uh, we have about 200 of these species, 200 of these fish, that are now about three to three and a half inches. And uh, it's truly an amazing fish, completely albino, And uh, we're interested in seeing uh, what the next generation of this fish actually looks like.
0: Yeah, it sounds fascinating. I'll be uh, definitely interested in seeing the article when you finish. So um, going back to maybe some of the fish keeping questions, can people keep species together? And what about numbers of the same species? What what are your recommendations on that?
1: I think for an aquarium, I think it really depends on what the objective of the hobbyist is. For a community tank, it's absolutely fine to keep fish together, certain fish together. But I would always stick to keeping fish in the same family. So if you're going to keep Heracthes, which is a complex from an endocyclosoma family, I would keep Heracthes with other Heracthes. But the most important thing is to keep fish of similar size, of similar temperament, and to give them ample space so that they can thrive and behave like they would in their own normal environment.
0: Now, um, I know you like speaking with hobbyists. Can you, uh, maybe as as we get a little bit closer to... uh Finishing up this interview, can any uh, interesting stories at any of your recent speaking engagements?
1: I can share a lot of what, uh, in terms of what some of the uh, things that, I've been asked this, and I've spoken in uh, the UK. My last speaking engagement was at the East Anglian Cyclic Group. And what I, one of the things that I realized is that as hobbyists in the United States, we're very fortunate because we have a lot of things at our disposal that are not available in other countries, such as medicine. So something as uh, simple as a product to a clear ick, it's very difficult to come by in foreign countries because of their rules as it relates to medicine to treat fish. But I would say that the most commonly asked things that pop up are feeding questions, aquarium questions. And what I always say is, if you're interested in, uh, in having a fish that's 10 inches, you should buy a fish that's 10 inches. If you're interested in having fish that are smaller, you should buy fish that are smaller. But ultimately speaking, every fish grows at its own potential. And they grow at the rate that they grow. So when you have fish that are smaller, uh, it's going to take them a while to reach maturity. But if you want a fish that's larger in size, you should buy a fish that's larger in size. Because really, uh, what ends up happening is it's very, very difficult to get to a fish to grow larger, or impossible to get a fish to grow larger than, than what its natural growth rate is. But most of the questions that are asked are in regards to feeding and, and aquarium size and things of that nature, and it's always the same. Make sure you feed them a balanced diet. Make sure you give them ample space. Make sure you don't overcrowd. And I think that's one of the things that there's so many varieties of New World cichlids, that one of the commonly made mistakes is that people want to put as many varieties as they possibly can in an aquarium, and that doesn't always work.
0: Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank you, Dan, very much and our producer, Mark Winter, for making the show possible. Hey, uh, Dan, did you have any final words of wisdom or information you want to share?
1: Well, thank you very much for your time, Roy and Mark, for having me. I look forward to this uh, opportunity to share my uh, thoughts and as it relates to the hobby and my website is cichlidsoftheamericas.com. And if you want to look at some interesting fish or just some interesting fish pictures, please feel free to visit my website. And uh, again, thanks a lot for your time. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future.
0: Thanks very much, Dan, again, for joining us. So please be sure to check out Dan's Aquarium Mania webpage. And the links also for his Cichlids of the Americas webpage will be on his Aquarium Mania bio page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. And hopefully we can maybe try to get some pictures from Dan to include there. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. And definitely consider setting up a tank of New World Cichlids with some of Dan Sharifi's fish.